This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. Hello and welcome to Spirited Conversations, a locally produced live recording of our keynote speaker. I'm Jan Marsh for Fresh FM and the Spirited Conversations Committee. Recently, investigative journalist Nikki Hager led a spirited conversation at Yaza Cafe on tax havens, Julian Assange and other work stories. Here is Barry McKee to introduce the evening. Thank you all. Welcome to a rather full Yatsa. Our guest tonight hardly needs an introduction. Over the years, he has established a reputation for uncovering truths. Many would wish to stay hidden. His journalism is of such a high integrity and has stood up to scrutiny and challenge. Recognition has come uh, by way of membership of such prestigious groups as NZIGIS, that's the Inspector General's Intelligence and Security, and as well the International Consortium of over 250 investigative journalists based across the globe. Let's welcome Mickey and hear about private investigators, tax havens, Julian Assange and other recent work stories. Kiratato, I am pleased to be here in this good company, including quite a few old friends who have um, gone through different interesting experiences with me through my life. Tonight I am going to talk, I haven't got a book launched or anything, there's nothing um, very new, but I would like to talk to you about the work of investigative journalism. And one of the reasons I want to do that is that there aren't enough people doing it. And you don't have to go to investigative journalism school for four years before you're allowed to do it. It actually usually gets done in a country like ours by somebody who cares a lot about an issue and wishes that somebody would do it, would investigate that issue, and realises that they're the person who will have to do it. And so I'm going to talk about my work to give a sense of what it involves and what the rhythms of it are, kind of, and, um, and some interesting recent experiences I've had, just like stuff from the last year, say. I'll tell some stories from it. So that's what you're getting tonight. The overall picture of investigative journalism, which is my favourite part of it, is that, there's a, as I said, there's a, a rhythm to what happens. I've become very familiar with which is that there's a new subject which feels to me like somebody should be doing something, or there's a, an issue where I feel like we're not being told the truth, and I start brainstorming to myself, if I could find the ways, what, what would I want to find out, like what might be there, and then secondly and most, interesting, most enjoyably, what are all the ways which I don't yet know, which I'll figure out, of finding information. So, for example, I'm starting some new projects at the moment which I can't tell you about, but what I do is, I, all the time I'm thinking, I wonder if there's some resources, I wonder what kind of people I could find to talk about this. I remember pre- previous projects and, and, and um, uh, productive ways I've obtained information which might, I might be able to reuse the ideas to find out stuff. In other words, I, there's a, um, there's a, it's a very creative process 
of imagining ways to find out things which are hard to find out and getting through the brick walls of secrecy to, to try to find out what's going on there. That's the mechanical side of it, but the actual stories I'm going to tell you tonight, I'm going to just give some work stories, which I hope are interesting. Actually, a lot of my work is about relationships and about strange connections and about serendipity. So I want to just tell some stories from the last year or so which um, illuminate this kind of work. And the first one, as it says up there on the board, is about tax havens. Tax havens is a subject which I've come back to and back to my work, partly because I started working on it in overseas collaborations, but also by doing it I've realised that it's one of those systemic, dreadful, incredibly destructive things which it's nobody's job to do anything about. So it kind of just rolls on and on and on. Tax havens doesn't mean where someone avoids tax. That's not the point of it. Tax havens, which are better called secrecy jurisdictions, are little tropical islands in the Caribbean or the South Pacific or somewhere where somebody can set up a company and the company owns a trust and the trust has a bank account in some other country and no one will ever know what is done with those entities. In other words, it's it's a lawless magnet for people who want to break the law hide their money, smuggle guns, whatever it is. It's kind of like an international legitimization of crime and corruption. It's the way that the money gets to the corrupt doctors from the pharmaceutical companies. I've done a lot of research on that subject. It's the way that the money gets to the corrupt dictator and out of the country and into the Swiss bank account. This is, this is the means, the organised legitimate means run by lawyers and accountants from countries like New Zealand how all this happens. So, I sometimes work on it. I just want to tell you one nice story from it. I believe that people should help each other in in international projects. And so, a few years ago, you'll remember this, there was a a Maltese journalist who was killed in a car bomb because she was investigating Daphne, because she was investigating corruption involving the Labour Party of her country, the Labour government. And she was getting too close to corruption, which has subsequently been well established and... She was right about what was going on. And so through the international networks that I belong to, I contacted the people who were working on it and said, if you ever need someone in New Zealand, in the south of the South Pacific, you know, maybe not very likely, I would be happy to help you on this because she's a colleague. And in fact, a a great project was set up involving people from all around the place, coordinated from France, which by an organisation called Forbidden Stories, which has the most beautiful mission. Its mission is to complete the work of journalists who are killed and imprisoned so the perpetrators don't get away with stopping them. Lovely, eh? And so I did my part of the job. I, they'd found that some of the Azerbaijan money, which was being secretly siphoned through to the Maltese Prime Minister and Minister of Finance and things, was coming to New Zealand. But they had this name of it, they had this address of a building in Auckland of an address of an of a office in Auckland where some of the secret um, companies which were holding the illicit assets was based. This is a common story because New Zealand is very slack about allowing people to use our company structures without proper oversight. And so I tracked it down and found the man who was running it who had been thrown out of the Channel Island tax havens for, for corrupt behaviour, so turned up in New Zealand and set up a company here using New Zealand companies and trusts as a service to sell to people in other countries, and and found the information, gave it to the people overseas, wrote one story about it for Radio New Zealand because it was kind of interesting and about New Zealand, and then forgot about it. 
And then a little bit later, I got an email from an extremely rich American man who was in a, a fight with a tax haven company about disappeared money, money which had disappeared from his wife's like hundreds of millions of dollars trust account, and just all gone. I know it's sounding like a long story, but it has got a point. <laughs> so I met this guy called Darren, and then became good friends with his partner, the one who lost the hundreds of millions of dollars, called Tanya. And they were really pleased because the guy in Auckland, in the, in the address in Parnell, which I had been hoping to track down, had also been part of cheating them. And so they were pleased to find that somebody somewhere in the world had written about this guy, and it, as a kind of a because I liked them and because it was, it was sort of interesting, I wrote a story about them again for Radio New Zealand just to talk about their plight, which was the first time they'd been, their, their troubles and their lost money had ever been written about. And it was just a favour because I was in, my head was in other things, but it was just, I liked the people, so I was sort of helping them out. Anyway, one thing leads to another. This is what it's about, it's about serendipity. They wanted to keep in touch with me. I was the only person they'd found who'd taken an interest in their private battle in the courts in, in Texas. And at some stage they mentioned the boxes, how they used the boxes to develop their court case materials. And I said, what are the boxes? And the boxes turned out to be 350,000 top-secret tax haven documents, this huge body of tax haven documents, which it's, a, it's like a shaggy dog story to explain how they came into their hands, but they did. And so I, I didn't immediately dribble over them, but I did say, oh, that's really interesting, 350,000. <laughs> Anyway, look, to cut a long story short, for the last two years, I've, I've dug deep into that 350,000 documents, which they eventually gave to me, and they, after I'd written them a, a, a kind of a plan of how they could become whistleblowers who were trying to do something about tax havens, the same tax havens which had been used to impoverish them. And eventually the fateful day came when two hard drives arrived through the mail from England, carrying the data, and I mined my way through it. I'm going into hundreds of thousands of documents is a story in itself, but it's a particular pleasure for some brains. <laughs> and then I worked with friends from around the world, and we set up a collaboration during last year, during COVID, where we had teams in different countries in North America and across Europe who were pulling out the different stories from these tax haven documents. That's the kind of thing I get into. And they were the most grisly stories. This was a company which never advertised. No one knew it existed. And it only had clients who had been passed on by other clients to do their special services. And their services would be things like, if the authorities come after you to, see, to try and catch what you've done, we will forge the documents which get you out of your trouble. And so there were lots of forged documents and lots of document forging going on and other crazy things. And so just if you're interested in what happens in my life, still on Tuesday, 10 o'clock every Tuesday, I'm on Skype with them as we plan the next newspapers, which they do, and the, the next steps of them as born-again whistleblowers. We talk about what's wrong with tax havens. And we've got some really big stories coming out in different European and US media still because that, that, those 350,000 documents just give and give and give the more you dig into them. That's one of the things I'm doing. And so it's a story, essentially it's a story about how good relations lead to good things. And that's, not, that's actually a very common story in my life. And I feel a great loyalty to those two now. I, I kind of want to move on, but I also think if you make somebody, if you persuade somebody to radically change their life, 
and, to, and, and irreversibly change their life into being tax haven whistleblowers, you can't just kind of drop them. <laughs> we're good friends, we're always in contact, and I've kind of become their, their support person as they go on their, on their quest now, which is amazing. Another story I said I'd talk about tonight is about Julian Assange, which is also a story of loyalty. Because as you know, Julian Assange went from being hero to gradually being ground down through pub- the p- bad publicity to where a lot of people wouldn't have anything to do with him and he was left very vulnerable as he is today in the prison in the United, in the United Kingdom. And I know Julian and I'm one of the people around the world who have used the materials which he helped to get, particularly about the Afghanistan war, unique, you know, totally impossible otherwise to get information about the Afghanistan war. And so when he's in trouble, after I've used his material, I feel that same kind of obligation to, to stick with him. And so you know the story, you know the rough story. Ask me more about it if you like. And the short version is, I, don't, I think he has been treated the way that everybody who's going to be punished gets treated, which is first you get smeared and then you get done. I think that he's a pretty fantastic, imperfect, brilliant Australian guy who was trying to make a difference in the world in the time of great secrecy and the war on terror. He should be in, he, we should all care about him a great deal, I think. He's done a lot of good, and he's desperately isolated and been treated abysmally. And so one of the things I've done, which is non-journalistic, but in my journalistic circles in the last year or two, has been mobilising investigative journalists country by country, most countries. We're all over the place. Never very many. But we, we, me and a man from Slovenia and a woman from Switzerland and a guy from Britain organised a public statement by hundreds of investigative journalists to stick up for Julian Assange and to say that if he can be criminalised for using leaked material well, then we all have done exactly the same thing and could be treated in exactly the same way, which is a fact. So what I do, I, I helped organise that public statement, and then I had a, a most surreal experience, which was that I was invited to be part of his court case in the Old Bailey. I don't know if you heard this, but there was an extradition hearing several months ago, an extradition hearing which was the one that was going to decide whether he went to the States and disappeared for 175 years into the American prison system. And his lawyers contacted various people who had written about him or spoken about him in the past which around the world, which included me, and in my case because I'd used the Afghanistan materials a lot, it's taken a lot of value from them and publicised stuff from them. And so I had, I just want to boast about this in a way, I had this weirdest, weirdest experience of being on the wall in the Old Bailey, being cross-examined by the US prosecutor <laughs> about whether or not Julian Assange was, was a criminal. And so I had the honour of saying the things that you, this thing I've already said, the things that you're accusing him of, which is, actually I'll tell you a bit more of the story. The guy, the prosecutor said to me, the difference between what Julian Assange and what you do is that you just wait till someone brings you information, but Julian Assange goes out and asks for it. And so I was able to say, you totally misunderstand what most of us do. We don't just sit by a secure drop box and hope that some whistleblower in the world sends us information about some subject we've never heard of so we write a story about it. That's not how it works. The work of an investigative journalist is that there's a subject that you choose, me, me, you know, my culpability. I choose that it should be worked on, and I go out and I look for people and I encourage them to give information. 
which while they might be authorised to have it in their jobs, they're certainly not authorised to give it to me. And in many cases, they're breaking the law when they do that, even though countries appreciate that the whistleblowers are an important part of a democracy. And so I was, I, I'm, I'm telling you this because I'm proud to have been able to do it. I was able to say, basically, what he does is exactly what we do, and there's no grounds at all for criminalising him about it, which is what I believe. So, actually, the slightly longer version of what I've been doing is, the last time I spoke in this room... I was talking about the book Hidden Run about Afghanistan. And in that book, we asked for there to be a full government inquiry into the things that we'd revealed. And I'd like to give a little bit of inside wisdom about this. If you ever write a book about something like that, don't ask for a full government inquiry. (laughs) (laughs) Because otherwise, the next three years or something of your life will be going through a horrible process where all the government departments are against you and walls of lawyers are fighting you. It's terrible. So I've just come out of that a while back, and I've had a variety of things which are kind of built up behind it, like the tax haven thing in Europe. Had to wait till Operation Burner Inquiry was finished in New Zealand before we launched, and they kept putting it off. And another one I've been doing, which is an interesting story, is about I've been tracking what was happening with those private investigators, Thompson and Clark, which might be vaguely familiar, but I remind you who they are. Thompson and Clark were those private investigators, those anti-democratic anti-freedom of speech private investigators who were caught spying on Christchurch insurance claimants in their claimant-only groups where they were trying to get justice from the insurance groups. And they, and they were also spying on Greenpeace, like following Greenpeace staff to work when they were trying to do something about climate change. So they were really the, the cream of New Zealand society. And they were caught doing that. They, the government departments were banned from ever using them again. They were thoroughly smeared. And then I started hearing rumours that they were just back to their evil ways again. And so it was that reliable pattern which I talked about, which was thinking, information is always somewhere. We're a small country. People know people. If there's a private investigator's secret street surveillance person, probably there's three or two degrees of separation between someone I know and them. If I set myself the task of trying to figure out what's going on with Thompson and Clark, there is probably a way. And so while, while I was torturing myself in Operation Burnham Inquiry, I was also, as, as kind of light relief, trying to find out about Thompson and Clark. <laughs> and one of the reasons I love this work is that it so often works, that, that, that things that I'm trying to do actually succeed. And in this case, I managed to get a whole pile of minute detail on what had been going on with Thompson and Clark over those two years since they had been thoroughly discredited in public and then put their heads down and kept going. One of the ones that you may have heard through, these stories came out on Radio New Zealand again. Um, One of them was that they were working for the Exclusive Brethren Church, who had this mission of, you know the Exclusive Brethren Church, they, if you question the man of God, the businessman in Sydney, in fact, who runs the church, if you question him, you are thrown out, banned from ever seeing your family, children, or children again and dotted all around New Zealand and the world are these people in various states of psychological trauma from being cut off from everything they know because they, they dared to question something that was going on inside. It's a brutal, bizarre little bit of life within the rest of New Zealand society, town by little town. And every time you order something from a furniture-making shop or something, there's half a chance that it's exclusive brethren because they run so many of the companies in small-town New Zealand. Anyway, what they were doing was they were hiring this private investigation company to spy on their former members to find out what they were doing and who they were meeting and basically 
who might be saying bad things or organising to try and stop the church being so oppressive to its members. Right. Totally gross. And it was a great, great pleasure to be able to reveal that because everybody concerned looked really terrible for what they were doing and you would hope it will make them more careful about doing it again. The other thing that Thompson and Clark was spying on, using its special collections manager, which is a term for intelligence profession, was spying on school strike climate kids and spying on the oil-free groups around the country, which again is about as despicable as you could imagine people could be doing at this particular point in world history. So, once again, worth catching them. I think I've used up my time, so what I just want to say is I want to return to the thing I said at the beginning, which is that one of the main hard bits of my work is that all around me, all the time, because I know what's possible to find out and the way that you find things out, there are things which I see which I wish that somebody was doing. And I can do one tiny fraction of the things which look to me like could socially usefully be investigated which is why I talked about how we need to spread the number of people who do it. And so that's, that's, I want to finish where I started, which is to say that whether you are being cross-subsidised by your other work in your life or cross-subsidised by the New Zealand government because of your lucky age or something like that, there are endless subjects which need somebody who would systematically and carefully and strategically dig into and burrow down deeper and find out things for the public which help to create the possibility of change. You're thinking, Eva, yes, he's right. There is a subject which I really care about, and no one else seems to do it, and maybe I could do it. I would be happy to hear from any of you any time, and to be part of the first talks with you about how to draw up that first list, and where the places are to start looking, and how you can start to do it as well. Questions? Well, thanks very much, Lee. That was really great. Are you in any danger? Am I in any danger? <laughs> no. Um, so, I think it's very important when you live in possibly the safest country on earth to do the work, the kind of work that I do, and many, and lots of you do too, that we don't live in fear. And so, I do do a risk assessment sometimes. I think I wouldn't, as a parent. And if somebody wants to keep living, I'd think twice about some kinds of targets, maybe like particular criminal elements or something. You, you choose whether you infiltrated them for obvious reasons. But the kind of work I do, which is government-level institutions like the military and intelligence agencies, it would be very wrong to live in fear. And, just to take your question to another level, we live in very dangerous and troubled times people always do but we also do and if we've got the capacity to do something about it we should push things as hard as we possibly can we've only got one we've only got one life to do with them thank you so much Nikki. it's a little bit surreal to be sitting in this comfy cafe hearing the sort of things you're talking about and you talk in your lovely quiet voice it reminds me of that saying just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you but um my question for you, and it picks up on what you were just saying in the last one, is we've got a room full of people, many of whom will be inspired by what you said, but saying, oh, I'll take on a bit of investigative journalism is a little bit like, well, why don't you jump to the moon next week? And, and I would be very interested. I do a tiny little corner of stuff, not anything like you do, but I'm involved a little bit in that journey. And I wonder if you can give us 
suggestions of steps we can take to push things in the right direction, even if it's not necessarily investigative journalism, because there's a, a cultural issue going on here as well with some of the things. Sure, thank you. First of all, I wasn't suggesting that investigative journalism suits everybody. Of course. <laughs> and actually, that's not how society has to work. Because if we were to do, if we had a few hours and we were to do a survey of this room, we would find that there are people looking after all kinds of different issues and social problems and personal, looking after families and experts on subjects. We, and we need that. We need, a, we need a rich society which covers all these different things that have to be done. But one of the things that has to be done which is not done very much is investigative journalism, which is why I was doing a little advertising supplement for it. And what I hoped to do was to demystify it and to say, and I would say, I'll go into that a bit more now. In a country like New Zealand, there are very few people who are paid full-time investigative journalists. Like, very few. And if the idea of being an investigative journalist was that you're one of those, then nearly everything that has to be done won't be done. But, but we actually live in a country where most investigative journalism is not done already, and down through the decades, hasn't been done by people who are called investigative journalists. It's done by the doctor or the medical expert who thought that someone had to look into that issue which was being a problem. Or, and a lot of it is done, for example, by filmmakers who make a documentary on a subject that they care about with careful research and piecing together facts and finding the old archives or whatever. That's investigative journalism. And so what I was wanting to suggest was that if there is an issue which anyone here is thinking, why doesn't somebody look into it, then sometimes the person who's wondering that, the answer is themselves. That's what I was trying to get at. And to finish your question, because I'm quite keen on advertising this. <laughs> and what are the steps? Well, as I said, the first step might be talking to someone like me, actually, to, to demystify further. And, what, and what, the way that you do, like if you're trying to find out something difficult and big, the way to do it is to go from a conceptual level, which is, I really wish I could find out what's going on in the Nelson City Council, you know, <laughs> high-level stuff. <laughs> and why it won't take more action on this issue or that issue, high-level stuff. And what I'm trying to do when I work on this is, what my, what my work process is, I'm thinking, what would be really important to find out and what tools might I use to find out? I said this bit, but then there's a third bit, which is, and let me write a list of the initial jobs I could do to start picking away at this. And we all know this. You can have the generalised... Um, Situation like my house is a rubbish tip <laughs> and, I'm, and I need to maintain it better and that doesn't get you anywhere. A list is a very powerful um, assistant to achieving some things. And so what, a lot of what um, the practicality of investigative journalism is, is not waiting for the super deep throat who solves all your problems overnight to just appear out of the air. It's thinking about what I'm trying to find the multitude of creative ways to try and find it, and then breaking that down into simple things like spend a day searching for the previous where the previous staff of the Nelson City Council have washed up since they left, or whatever it is. Just you know, just here's here's some real practical things I could get on with to try to crack this thing I'm going to do. Uh, a lot of people here in New Zealand are very uh, mystified by the actions of the government of the United States, and I'd like to 
complain because I've been here for about 15 years and I find a lot of the actions are New Zealand government are imitating the, the worst of the United States. And of course, I think a lot of it can be explained if you follow the money. One story I really like to tell, because I think it's very revealing, is from my father-in-law in 1977, who told us that he was pushed out of a big pharmaceutical company when it was bought by the mafia. And I think that a lot of the, obviously, politics Cuba and the United States is uh, due to the gangsters that had their casinos taken away, that sort of thing. So I wonder if you're uh, finding that you're getting yourself into some very dangerous territory in your investigations. I mean, you, had, you answered about being under danger, but um, it, it's really serious stuff. Some of my colleagues overseas doing the same work get killed and intimidated and have to flee their countries. So yes, you do get threats. And if you're studying, the, if you're studying people whose currency is violence, then obviously it's much more dangerous. But what I was saying was, in New Zealand, the problems of the rest of the world are here, but they're not as acute, and the money is not as big, usually, and things are more susceptible to change. And we don't live in a place where there's casual violence on anywhere near the scale that there is in some other countries. And what does that mean? It means we should get on with it. Our five million person vote in sort of world opinion is, is almost nothing. Who cares what five million people think? But when New Zealand does good things, we give heart to people in other countries. It's a strange little dynamic which is set up that when you're feeling bleak about living under Trump or whatever it is, you think, at least there's New Zealand, which we know is imperfect and we know is not all straightforward. But we should be tried doubly hard here because our example matters elsewhere as well, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Hi Nikki, um, firstly I just want to give you a deep heartfelt thank you for the commitment of your work. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand actually the work that is done and a lot of work goes unnoticed and unappreciated, so deep heartfelt thank you. For new whistleblowers starting out, um, my question to you is what advice would you give at the stage where there's no resilience left? because you feel intellectually isolated, you're struggling with the apathy and the stonewalling and the doors that keep on being shut and you don't get any more answers. What do you mean by whistleblower, please? Well, just the, the process of, like you said, finding an issue that you really feel deeply about and you, you want to raise and you need to call out something that's quite serious and there's a lot of silencing and protection around that particular issue. Okay, I'll answer the question I thought you were asking first and then I'll ask the questions you were answering. <laughs> I don't genuinely recommend to people that they be whistleblowers. This is like someone from an official job who's got access to secret information and things. I know I've had zero instances in New Zealand where I've suggested to somebody that they go public with their information because there's not enough protection and the pressure's not... not, it's not even if someone... Reveals the most terrible wrongdoing, their life will probably be horribly messed up by, by the act of, of being a good public member of the public. So, the main thing I recommend for whistleblowers is that they remain unknown and they choose to work with someone who will make the highest priority protecting their identity. But what I think you were talking about. Rephrase it to investigative journalists. Yes, thank you. obviously it's a, it's a huge topic. What I would say is, 
I think with all political activity, speaking up, because speaking up is the engine of change, and organising, which various people around this room are doing, the best good journalism, it matters tremendously that we're not stuck on our own. In fact, I would say, I would say if somebody said to me, well, how do I choose between all these important issues that I could work on? I would always say, work with the people you like the most. I really, truly, deeply believe that from a life of watching people involved in politics. And that you'll do the most good that way. And it's the same with investigative journalism. That if you're feeling isolated and unappreciated and stretched, it's no way to live. And the, and the answer to that is other people, I think. Hi, Around the time of the, the Malta thing some years back and the tentacles reached out to New Zealand, the national government in power said, oh, perhaps we should have a look into who's making the money in New Zealand by assisting the people to evade and avoid these taxes. And um, it turned out that about $18 million was being made by some accountants and lawyers to facilitate this work. And I remember... The National Government at the time said, oh, we must have an inquiry into this. We'd better look into this. But anyway, I wrote to Nick Smith and he replied. So I just wondered what happened to that. Do you know what I'm referring to? I'm not sure what you're referring to, but I know that nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'll just say a word about it. Tax haven lawyers, I'll say this because it's interesting for other things that people might be working on. Tax haven lawyers had and accountants, and company law, and trust law, and so on, is one of those issues where everyone would care about it if they knew about it, but practically nobody knows about it, and they don't know what's going on, and it's not the focus of their attention. And so when change is possible, or when change is called for, there is maximum interest and engagement from the people who don't want to change it, and probably no engagement and interest from the people who latently would care about, care about it if they even knew about it. And so those, those, those situations get stuck, that politicians don't have the pressure coming on from the public. They've only got pressure coming on saying, we earn millions and millions a year and we're really important and we only do nice work. And, and it works. And this is, a, this, this is a dynamic of power that gets repeated over and over again which is where the vested interests are incredibly vigorous and everyone else doesn't even know that something's going on that month or that year. And the only cure is that some other people get busy. You obviously get a lot of negative feedback from some of the investigations that you do. What motivates you to keep going with this stuff? I do get a lot of negative stuff. The reason I keep going is because I can make a difference. And I feel sorry for people who could be making a difference, whose lives have not taken them down the track where they realise the power they had. Because I think, especially in our little country, but generally, someone who speaks up and writes and thinks and does can have far more influence than they realise. I really believe that. I believe that far and wide. And I've had experience, enough experiences which means that keeps me going. On the subject of insults, which I am something of an expert on... <laughs> One of the things that protects me is that I know it's a tactic, basically. That one of the unattractive things and wrongful things about the way politics is conducted by some people is that they don't argue the issue, they don't argue the facts, they just try to discredit the place it's coming from. And that goes on all the time. And, and if we don't recognise it, well, then we're actually sort of collaborating in it. We're thinking, oh yeah, Julian Assange is a horrible person. No, someone's trying to take him out and remove his power, and so on. 
or the councillor, or the MP, or the water scientist, or whatever it is. There's a reason why they get criticised in flagrant, insulting terms, because someone is trying to reduce their power and have them have less influence over what's going on. And so, while I don't like being insulted, I know why it's happening, which means it doesn't have as much effect. And I have a little saying, which I offer to you, should you find yourself in this position, which is I say to myself, I'm going to take notice of this person's comments in direct proportion to how much I respect them. <laughs> um, I was just speaking with Nicky before we started, in fact, and I was just speaking about, sort of on that topic, really, I said to Nicky, you know when you're succeeding because you're getting somewhere when people start to insult you, um, which means you need to carry on. Yeah, yeah people marginalise you for a reason, and it's not to compliment you, it's to, it's to reduce your power and influence. And so the conduct of politics is partly a battle over who's right, but actually in real terms it's also frequently a battle over whether you can retain your credibility in the face of deliberate smears and, and marginalisation. That's how it's conducted. That's what the battle is often. Um, just a kind of weird question, really, but... Um my impression can be sometimes that people are a bit odd and most of them will just follow what the status quo or the norm is and don't want to make big fuss and that perhaps you're about the 3% of population that thinks you can do something or has a difference and, and makes that sort of approach. And I'm just wondering if you think there's a population or personality sort of thing of the way the human race kind of is if you get what I'm asking. Yeah. I sometimes think what you, the thing you said, which is that people don't seem to care, and I think it's totally wrong, actually. Well, what happens to me is I, I might be feeling discouraged a bit or something, and I just have to step out the door and I start meeting people who contradict it one after another. I, I don't think that people don't care. I don't, I think, and I don't think people are stupid. They might be able to be encouraged to be a little bit stupid sometimes, but they're not stupid. And I don't think they don't care. I think they care a lot, even though they can be encouraged not to care sometimes. What I would think more is that people have different experiences in their lives which tell them whether they, whether they have any power, whether what they do makes a difference. And that a lot of political change is a process of, of a wide range of people coming to feel that actually they can. They shouldn't be discouraged and hopeless and that they don't matter and where they feel that actually possibly they can make a difference. It's kind of like the school strike marches. People said that young people never march, but actually they just needed to start to feel like maybe it, made it would, would work. And all that nauseating stuff which I've heard for years from people about why don't young people blah, 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 blah. It was a joy to watch it contradicted. But they needed to have a sense of hope about it. They needed, I think this makes sense. You can't care deeply about things and then see nothing happen and know where to go with it. We have to kind of shut ourselves down if we, from caring in a way or thinking about stuff if we don't think there's any way to do it. But then when people are doing it and they are looking hopeful and the kids are going down the streets with their signs and stuff, people feel hopeful again and so they join in. And then we see the good side of them. That's the, that's, you see what I'm saying? Nikki, can you tell us a bit about the work of the consortium of investigative journalists and also whether the GCSB reference group is meeting 
The uh, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which I'm a member of, it's a very American kind of a, a, an organisation, but uh, it's done a lot of good. There was this guy called Chuck Lewis, who's a real goodie in the States, who had the idea that investigative journalists work on their own. They're lone, lone wolves. This person goes there, but then the story that they're doing crosses into West, West Africa and they can't follow it there because they, no, they don't know their way around there or whatever. And he had this idea that if you had people working in different countries, investigative journalists of different countries as members of the same organisation, that gave the capacity to chase stories wherever they went and to investigate um, many countries at once to build the bigger picture. So it was a very idealistic idea, which has partly worked and partly hasn't worked, but it's a, it's a good thing. I'm still part of it. I like it. And it's not the only collaboration of investigative journalists that... that it was part of a growth of people realising that cross, what they call cross-border collaboration was a powerful and strong thing, which I totally agree with, which is why when I'm contacted about, like I said, contacted to help with the, after that journalist was killed and things, I always help because I think we all benefit from it when we do that. That was Nikki Hager, recorded live at a spirited conversation at Yaza Cafe in Nelson during July. Spirited Conversations air Friday afternoon at 3 and Saturday afternoon at 4. I'm Jan Marsh. Thanks for joining us for Spirited Conversations at Fresh FM. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.